Um, Want to invite our children to Children's Church. Uh, head out the back, your teacher will meet you. Just an age-appropriate setting for them to learn the scriptures as well. And um, as they're going, let's open in a word of prayer. Lord, we do thank you so much for the freedom that we have uh, to gather together as your people and to worship. Uh, Lord, we are uh, reminded from the story even this morning that uh, the civil authorities only have so much authority over us, that you are our ultimate authority and that you are the one who rules what we will and won't do. And so uh, we thank you that we have uh, the liberty to enjoy that. And Lord, I want to pray for um, our fellow churches in the Antelope Valley who are um, diligently studying, preaching, and teaching your word, especially for my friend uh, Rich Barcellus's church, Grace Reformed Baptist in Palmdale. Lord, I pray that you're with Pastor Barcellus this morning as he opens your word to his congregation. Holy Spirit, would you empower what he says and apply it to their hearts and their minds. And Lord, we pray that you would continue to bless that, that congregation with a fruitful ministry and with uh, the word of power from your word. Uh, Lord, thank you for uh, their friendship and for um, the fact that we know that there are other churches in the valley engaged in uh, expounding the scriptures in a way that uh, highlight who Jesus is and lead us in faith. And uh, thank you for the partnership. Lord, would you be with us now as we look into your word and help us to understand what it is that you have for us this morning. But more importantly, Lord, would you engage our hearts and minds to embrace the truth and to live according to that. Lord, that's a spiritual endeavor that's only available to us because of the power of the Holy Spirit. So Lord, would you please be working in your people this morning? In Christ's name we ask, amen. So we're, um, we're doing chapter five kind of in bits. Like last week, we only looked at Ananias and Sapphira, and that story kind of ended abruptly, and we just left it there. And now this week, we're kind of breaking it up in, in a different section. Really, when you look at chapter 5, it is all one big story, and it really all belongs together. But it's just too much to unpack, so I, I kind of feel guilty breaking it up, but that's the best way to do it. So the, even this morning, we break it up at, a, at another odd place. So uh, what I want you to understand is that chapter 5 is, is one continuous thing. And so we're still preaching basically the same sermon that we started last week, but we're just now taking the next step. So last week, you'll remember, with the death of Ananias and Sapphira, the repeated phrase in that section was fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord was upon them. The fear of the Lord was, was uh, amongst them. And what I said last week, the fear of the Lord was not this dreaded terror that you might run into him, but this is a conqueror who defeated the foes that used to scare you to death. And he wiped them out with no problem. So when you want to fear something, you want to fear the biggest bully in the class, right? Well, you want to fear the guy who beat up the biggest bully in the class. And basically, that's what God did. He defeated death. He defeated hell. He defeated Satan. And so there is a, there is a respect, an awe-filled respect for him because he has defeated those enemies. He has earned your respect. And that's what we mean when we say the fear of the Lord. It's not the dread that we had of death and hell and Satan. It's a fear-filled respect. It's a, it's a looking to him and saying, here's an even greater enemy. Here's an enemy who actually loves me and cares for me. Here's a foe that wants me, not wants to destroy me. And so that was what happened last week with the death of Ananias and Sapphira, was we were reminded that the fear of the Lord is a good thing to have. It, we should be reminded that God is someone to be feared and respected, but also loved and drawn close to. Um, and that's what kind, kind of can be scary is when you see something really huge and you draw close to it. Like when, when Lisa and I drove out here, we stopped at the Grand Canyon. 
And from a distance, you go, oh, there's a big hole in the ground. And then you get close to the edge, and you get this sudden fear and respect, not because you think the Grand Canyon is going to swallow you up or something, but it's just this is a big thing. This is a big, huge hole in the ground, and I could easily be in trouble if I get too close. That's that idea of the fear of the Lord is not dread, but awe-filled respect. And so that was what we saw last week was Ananias and Sapphira taught us and actually bred in the church that awe-filled respect of the Lord. So we pick up now and we're taking the next section. And, and what this section is about is actually the apostles and gospel courage. So last week was Ananias and Sapphira and the fear of the Lord. This is the apostles and courage. So fear and courage kind of go together. When we look at this section, what we're going to see is, uh, fear. first of all, um, the, the, fear and the, the fear of God, the courage, and the gospel in what was going on at the beginning. And then the second part, we get the opposite of that. What we're going to see is the fear of man. So there's the fear of God, which is a good thing, and the fear of man, which is debilitating. Um, it's really a, a negative. So here's, the, here's how this whole thing happens. Ananias and Sapphira, that episode has ended. Uh, great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. And then Luke brings up the next section. It's not all bad news. Now, many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. So the apostles had this special gift, this special ability that Jesus had given them to regularly perform signs and wonders. It was just an, a unique thing. As a matter of fact, as we go through this first section, what Peter is doing begins to sound a lot like what his master used to do. That man who he walked with for three years He's doing exactly what he's been commissioned to do. So the apostles had these signs and wonders that were regularly done by them. As a matter of fact, Paul talks later about um, the fact that he performed the signs of the apostles, the signs of his apostleship. The apostles had this unique ability, this unique gift that God had given them to authenticate their message. And it was these signs and wonders that were done regularly. So remember, we've asked a number of times, Book of Acts, is it descriptive or prescriptive? Um, both. It's describing what happened, but is it prescribing that you be able to regularly do signs and wonders? Uh, it's not up to me. I, I can't manufacture that. If God gives me that, then great signs and wonders. If God doesn't, then no signs and wonders, and I'm still going to do it. So when we look at this, this is not telling you that you're not a good Christian if you don't do signs and wonders. It's the apostles who regularly did that. But God is with them. He's authenticating their ministry. He is empowering their ministry so that they continue to preach the gospel with authority. And what we'll see is the results of that is it's working. God's message is getting out. And it says uh, that the apostles did these signs and wonders, and they were all together in Simon's portico. Simon's portico, portico is another name for a porch. So part of the court of the women, so there was the court of the Gentiles, then you would come in the next layer, and there was the court of the women. And then you come in the next layer, it was the court of the men. And then it was the inner court where the temple was, and then the inner sanctuary. So you got uh, more restrictive. In the court of the women, there was a section called Simon's Porch or Simon's Portico. Large overhang, shady place to hang out. So these, these apostles are now inside the, the more secure, the more sacred section of the temple, and they're together. Um, the problem with this section is Paul goes, um, they, and he doesn't necessarily tell us who they is, or is, are. They are who they were. Um, and, and so there can be some, a little bit of confusion as to who's who. 
if you've read this, you've probably already made up your mind who's who, but I want to go through and tell you how I'm understanding this. So it says in verse 12, they were all together in Simon's portico. Who is they? Is they the whole church, all the disciples? I think they is referring specifically to the apostles. Uh, one of the, the ways you interpret scripture is when you get to a generic term like they and you don't know who it is, usually you go with what's called the immediate antecedent. There's your big word, impress your friends. I'm going to the immediate antecedent. Um, what that means is who are they just talking about? That's usually the clearest way to understand it. Um, I know that doesn't always work. <laughs> Because there's times when Lisa and I are telling each other stories and I'll get my hymns and hers and, and, and I'll jumble and she'll go, wait a minute, wait, who? Oh, yeah, because I said him three times and I was referring to four different people. So him, this guy, did that to him, that guy. Um, so the Bible is divine, but it's also human, so that immediate antecedent doesn't always work. In this case, I think it does. Because it says they were all together in Simon's portico. So some group was assembled in Simon's portico. The very next thing it says is none of the rest dared to join them. So none of the rest who? Well, if they're all together, if the whole church is together in Simon's portico, uh, remember last count was over 3,500 people. Um, that probably isn't it. So I think it's referring specifically to the apostles continued to go to the temple. They're in Simon's portico and they are preaching. Now, when it says the rest dared not join them, what that's talking about is the rest of the church wouldn't come with them, decided not to come with them. Um, I don't think that Luke there is indicting the church and saying, what a bunch of cowards. Because he, he, the way he phrased it is they didn't dare, not they didn't have enough faith to or they refused to or something. It just simply says they didn't dare. I think what, what Paul is aiming for here or Luke is aiming for here is not what a bunch of cowards. I think the picture he's trying to paint for us is, look at your apostles. It was such a threatening, threatening, intimidating thing. They've already been arrested for preaching in the temple, and look what they did. They went right back into that dangerous situation. I think what Luke is trying to show us is these apostles are very brave. They are not being dissuaded by the authorities coming and yelling at them. And we'll see that again. That's what's going to come up next. So it's not an indictment against the church for not going. It is, these men did something unique. These are brave people. They, they did something really courageous. They dared. And that word for dared, none dared join them, it's used to describe Joseph of Arimathea in Mark 15. Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. That's that same word. Only in this case, it's they didn't dare and what that says is Joseph of Arimathea dared to go ask for the body of Jesus. So it has to do with a, a, a message about courage, about being uh, brave enough to go and do these things. So our apostles are heading into the temple. They are brave enough. They have enough courage to go and do that. Um, what is courage? Is courage never being afraid? That, that's not courage. That may be stupidity. <laughs> There are times when the right answer is to be terrified. What courage is, is going and doing it anyway. I think I've read him before, but I, I think this, this quote that I have is, is really a good illustration of bravery. There was a man named Robin Olds. He was a World War II ace, uh, flew the P-38 and uh, P-51 uh, throughout the, the Battle of Britain. 
And then later on in his career, when Vietnam kicked off, he was a great aviation leader in Vietnam. And he wrote a book called Fighter Pilot. It's, it's kind of co-authored. He, he told his story and somebody else wrote it. But he's talking about his time when he was in England in a fighter squadron during the war and what it meant to be brave. He said, I had two roommates, my flight lead, Satch, um, Satch Turner and Wally Wallace. Wally was frightened. I'd hear him crying in his sleep, mourning, uh, moaning, I'm sorry, I'd hear him crying in his sleep, moaning and calling out his wife's name. I judged him something of a coward and said so in the journal I kept. Then it dawned on me that Wally wasn't a coward at all. In fact, he was just the opposite. He was one of the bravest men I would ever meet. No matter what his mental state, Wally never failed and refused to fly or refused to fly. He never faltered during a, during a mission. He performed as well as anyone else. Moreover, he did it despite the fear he was experiencing. Going on missions was easy for me. I looked forward to them and got on the schedule whenever I could. But who was I to judge another man? What I did wasn't brave. What Wally did took far more. So Robin Olds was not, it, it, he loved the combat. He loved the, the, the fray. It just energized him. He couldn't wait to get on the schedule. So he wasn't brave. It didn't take bravery to go do that. That was what he, I think, if I can be honest, I think he was genetically engineered to do that. He was just a, an excellent fighter pilot. That's what he should be doing. But his roommate, Wally, the man cried every night. He was terrified of what he was doing. And every morning he got up, put on his flight suit. Every morning he climbed into his P-38. He fired up his engines and he took off. Despite the fear. That's what courage is. So when you look at the apostles charging back into the temple, preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, it's not that they weren't afraid. It's that they were courageous. Even if I'm facing the anger and the wrath of these highfalutin priests and these educated people and these rich folks, even if they're opposed to me at every instant, I, I may go in there with knees knocking, but I'm going in. I'm going back in. Because they feared the right thing. They were feared with, or filled with the fear of the Lord. They knew that God was working. They could see that he was working. And so what they had confidence in was not their abilities, not their skills at oratory. They had their confidence in the Lord, and they went in to the, to the temple, and that's what they did. So courage is not a lack of fear. It's being afraid and completing your mission anyway. And that's what they did. So this is where the fear of the Lord can lead, is to courage. Because you're, you're afraid of the Lord being displeased with you. You love him so much. You are so delighted in who he is that the idea of disappointing your God would just break your heart. And then you look out and you see people opposed to you, sometimes violently opposed to you. And so what gives you that courage? What, what can build that momentum so that you can go and say, bring it. I, I, I can't not do this. It's the fear of the Lord that outweighs that. And that's what we're seeing with our apostles as they go into Simon's portico and they preach. So none of the others would join them. It was, it was a high-risk thing. And so the others wouldn't come. But what's the result? Verse 14, and more than ever, believers were added to the Lord. 
Their mission succeeded, not because they were so composed and, and, and well-educated. Their mission succeeded because the Lord was with them, because he had shown them the fear of the Lord should outweigh the fear of man. More and more uh, believers were added to their numbers, multitudes of both men and women. The gospel is going forward. It's continuing to work. God is continuing to call people to himself so that the result of this is they would carry their sick into the streets and lay them on cots and mats so that Peter, when he came by, his shadow might fall on them. Now, this is not gathering signatures. This isn't like trying to get it rush in and get his autograph on, on something. When they talk about his shadow following on him, they thought that even if his shadow touched them, then they could be healed because God was working so mightily in Peter. There was so much power in what Peter was doing because he was in there attending to the business that the Lord had given him, preaching and telling, testifying about Jesus' resurrection. God was fitting them also with the power to preach and the power to work miracles to authenticate that message. And so when people saw it, they were drawn to that. Even if they didn't believe the message, and multitudes did, they knew that there was power there, and so they would come in. So even if his shadow fell on me. Now, does it say here that his shadow fell on people and they were healed? I think that might be a little bit of superstition on the part of the people. They're expecting just this miraculous thing to happen. But don't end there. Keep going. Um, it says next, the people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem. So now, remember what Jesus told them? You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea. Now the mission is beginning to spread. It's not just in Jerusalem. Now the towns of Jerusalem are coming in, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. So doesn't that now sound like what Jesus was doing? As Jesus was walking around, he, he would get to places and he couldn't move because they would bring so many people in and he would stand there and heal the sick and preach the gospel. They are, these are disciples. They have watched what the master has done. The master has fitted them for this role and they continue to walk in it. Not because they're super brave people who never fear any fear or never experience any fear, but because they respect their Lord and they're walking according to what he's called them to. So this is their ministry. This is what's going on. This is what the fear of the Lord can yield in you. Um, the takeaway I do not want you to take right now is that was the apostles. They went out and did that. Therefore, church leadership does it, and I don't have to. So we have this prayer ministry at ABC. We go and we just stand out in the quad on a couple of days a week, and we offer to pray for people. Don't look at me and Ramey and say, well, that's what we pay you guys for. We'll just sit and watch. That's not the message here. The message is, if you have a fear of the Lord, wherever the Lord is calling you, whatever role he's putting you in, you will have more of fear of him than you will of man. And you'll follow in whatever role he's called you to. So don't look at us and go, you guys do it and we'll just sit back. That, that's, and, and if you think that, then I'm going to ruin it in the next couple of weeks as we continue through Acts, because that's not what happens. Um, it just is focused right now. So that's the ministry. That's what's going on. This is what God is doing in and through them multitudes are coming to trust in this resurrected Jesus, this Christ whom you killed, as they've said. But that can be really good news in the Bible, or it can be really bad news. In this case, it's kind of bad news. But, but the high priest rose, and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them into public prison. 
We cannot have this kind of disruption going on in our church service. Thank you very much, apostles. Off to jail with you. So they arrest them. So what does the bravery of being able to step out in, in the face of fear, in the face of intimidation get you? In this case, it got them arrested. That was what happened. And so God must not be happy with them. We must not, we should probably discontinue this ministry because, you know, yeah, we're getting some fruit, but there's, there's just too much opposition, right? Listen to where this goes. They arrested them and put them in the public prison. So now the apostles are taken out of the temple. They're put in the public prison. And during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out. The only thing you can do to us is basically what they're saying is, you can arrest us, but you can't keep us. If God wants us out of this prison, we're out. So what happens? They arrest them, and, and you listen to the way that the, the guards describe it. They had locked all the doors. They had guards censured, sense, uh, uh, standing at, at the doors and the entries to the thing. This was as secure as it could be made. And when God decides, no, the apostles need to go back into the temple, they go. So God sends an angel. He opens the doors and brought them out. They just walk right out of the temple. I can't imagine what this looked like. Because if they're in the prison and the guards are at the doors, how did they miss that? Well, they missed it because God decided that they were going to miss it. They, they couldn't see it. Maybe the, the light went out. Maybe they passed out. Maybe they fell asleep for a moment. Who knows? God could do anything. He could make them invisible and just whisk them out. Our God is sovereign. He works that way. So somehow they just waltz right out of the prison. And once they're outside, the angel then turns and says, Go, stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. This life. There is a specific, particular life of which you must speak. And what they're talking about is he's telling them, you go back into the temple and you continue to talk about this Jesus who's raised from the dead and who has offered them new life. Go speak of this life. And so in the morning, that's exactly what they did. When they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. So there is a point where you cannot hold God's people. The, the, the authorities can only go as far as God is willing to let them. The worst, if, if they throw us in jail, God can lead us right back out. He can have us just walk out. Or if you've heard of some of the, uh, the Christian pastors like in Iran, God decided not to just walk them right out. There was more work to be done by having them imprisoned. But in this case, at this point, the message would be more powerful, more impactful if God led them to walk right out of the prison. Now, this is nothing new. What's happening here is nothing brand spanking new. This kind of opposition to God's message has been going on in Israel for years. It's been going on for a very long time. And God has been miraculously delivering his people. And he has been not miraculously delivering them. So the example I thought of was Jeremiah 38. Jeremiah is, is preaching in Jerusalem as the, the nation is falling. His message to, to Israel or to Jerusalem or to Judea is give up now and go into exile because God has ordained this. And after this period of trial, after, after 70 years, you will be brought back into the land. But you need to lay down your arms now and submit. That's his, been his message. The people don't like it. They think he's a traitor. You're, you're causing people to defect by standing here telling you. You're claiming to be a prophet, and you're telling people to defect, and people are listening to you. 
So here's what he says. He comes in, he says, Thus says the Lord, he who stays in this city shall die by the sword, by famine, and by pestilence. But he who goes out to the Chaldeans shall live. He shall have his life as a prize of war and live. Thus says the Lord, this city shall surely be given into the hands of the army of the king of Babylon and be taken. And it wasn't a popular message. So what happened is they go to the king, his, his opponents go to the king and say, we've got to shut him down. You have got to arrest this man. You've got to execute him because he is causing the army to break up. And so King Zedekiah says, behold, he's in your hand for the king can do nothing against you. So the king is, is too afraid of these people who are opposed to him, and he allows a prophet to be arrested. So they take him and they throw him in a pit. There's a cistern in the city, and since the city's under siege, since it's all surrounded, there's no water in it. Their surrounding armies cut off the water. There's no water in the city. There's, there's uh, famine is coming. And so they take him and they throw him in the pit, and at the bottom is just mud, and, and uh, poor Jeremiah sinks up to his who knows what in mud. He's stuck. So you would think at that point, well, God must not be happy with me because look at this horrible situation I'm in. But here's what happened. Ebed-Melech, the Ethiopian, a eunuch in the king's house, heard about this. And, and the Ethiopian, the non-Jew, goes to the king and says, you can't let this happen. Jeremiah is going to die if you leave him in that pit. And so the king gives him his own clothes they wrap him around a rope and drop it down there, and Jeremiah puts the ropes under his arms, padded by the king's clothing, and they pull him out. And he's saved. He's miraculously delivered. Our apostles are arrested because the leaders are opposed to the message that they have, because the message they have is going to undo all of the, the, um, the power and the authority of the leaders. They're thrown into jail, and instead of an Ethiopian eunuch, does that sound familiar, by the way? Ethiopian eunuch somewhere in Acts? Isn't it amazing? God continues to use these similar things over and over again. Instead of an Ethiopian eunuch, this time God sends an angel and draws them out. Now, the reason I brought that up is, first of all, because I thought it sounded a lot, very similar, but second of all, because this is something Jesus has been saying all along. For example, Luke 6, 22, he said, Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. One of the things Jesus has been accusing the Pharisees and the leaders of Israel and Herod and all of those guys of is, you are doing exactly, exactly what Israel and what Judah did when you read through Kings and Chronicles. He's saying you are doing exactly the same thing. You're opposing God and you're opposing his, his prophets. And they're thinking, oh, we would never do such a thing. If we had been around in our Father's Day, we would have been on, on uh, Jeremiah's side. And Jesus looks him right in the face and says, no, you wouldn't, because you're doing the same thing now. And look what's going on now. Jesus' name is being proclaimed, not just, oh, he was a really good guy, but he rose from the dead. You killed him, he rose again. And their response is, well, go to jail. They're doing exactly what their fathers did. If you look through the prophets, tons of prophets, most of the prophets were sent to Judah, the northern tribes. They never had a good day. They never had a good king. They never had a good religious season. And God sent them tons of prophets. And they hated them. 
And, and what Jesus is saying is you're doing the exact th- same things now. And so when Jesus was, was looking at the city in Matthew 23, 37, he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets. It's the same thing. The city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing? What we're seeing here and what the apostles are experiencing is nothing new. This is what the people had been doing to prophets all along. And yet, they're in Simon's portico and they're preaching the good news. So now they, the, the high priest, the, the captain of the temple, all the leaders, they thought, okay, we've got this problem contained. The troublemakers are in jail. Uh, the sun's gone down. Now it's the next day. Let's bring them out and we'll deal with this. So we'll put them on trial and, and give them a fair trial, find them guilty, and then execute them. That sounds like a good plan, don't you think? That's what we're going to do. So the high priest came and those who were with them, and they called together the council, that is the senate of the people of Israel. So they're getting the whole leadership of the nation together here. And they sent to the prison to have them brought. So bring the prisoners. So you imagine uh, the, both houses, the, uh, the Congress and the Senate are all assembled. The uh, vice president is standing at that big podium with the American flag before him, and they say, bring the prisoners. And so they're expecting to have these guys come in all humble and contrite. Hey, a good night in jail will uh, soften anybody up. We should be able to handle this. But when the officers came, they didn't find them in the prison, so they returned and reported, we found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. So it's not like there was a prison break where they blew a wall out you know, with a stick of TNT and a, and a cowboy hat and lit it off their cigar and threw it in. This prison's secure. The guards are standing there. There was no mass shootout. This is when we went to where they were. They weren't there. Something, something's happened. And so they were, the captain of the guard uh, heard these words. They were greatly perplexed about them and wondering what this would come to. They're beginning to get a sense that God is up to something. These people have been doing miracles regularly, and now we arrest them and they're gone. What is this leading to? But here's the, here's the problem. They can see the signs. They can watch the miracles. But since they refuse to believe in Jesus, they have no faith. These are only just amazing things. They will never come to repentance. They're continuing to figure out, well, how do we overcome this one? Okay, we arrested them. That didn't work. So what's next? Instead of looking at it as a rational person would and go, there's something much bigger than us. Maybe we should listen. They're looking at it as I'm going to lose if we don't beat them. And so they ask, what is this going to come to? And someone came and told them. So they're standing there looking at each other, kind of dumbfounded. And somebody runs in and says, look, the man who you put in jail are standing in the temple teaching the people. Like, Wait a minute. We just arrested him for doing that. And then they waltz out of prison and they come right back in. They probably expected him to head for the hills. And they're standing in the temple and they're teaching again. So the captain, remember the captain of the temple was this, they had their own police force essentially because the Romans weren't allowed in the temple. So the Jews set up their own little police force to, to make sure that people you know, stayed within the rules of the temple. And that's who the captain was, is the captain is, is the, the head of this police force. So the captain and his officers went and brought them. Ah, they were going to arrest them again, right? Nope, but not by force. They wouldn't come and arrest them. And why? 
And this is where it loops back to the idea of fear, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. There is a fear of God that motivates and empowers to do things. I am going to go out and I'm going to preach. I'm going to go out and stand in the temple. I'm going to go out and do these things because I have a fear of the Lord. And then there is a fear of man which disables, which, which impedes. It stops what you want to do because you're afraid of men, because you're afraid of people's opinion. Before I became a Christian, before I believed in Jesus Christ, I had a tremendous fear of man. I wouldn't have called it that. What I wanted is I just wanted to be cool because everybody was cool. And so if I did the cool thing, then I'd be cool. What it meant was everybody had a power over me because if they were cool and I respected that, then I would want to do that. That was a fear of man. Instead of being my own person, I would do this or do that or whatever because I wanted their respect. That's what these guys are experiencing is they will not do it because they have a fear of the crowd. And if they know if they get the crowd angry, they're going to get stoned. So wait a minute, you're the police force. You're the ones who's supposed to maintain order in the temple, and you're afraid you're going to get stoned by the people? How, why are we paying you people? Why are we doing this? It would be like somebody who, who was hired to be a, a, a California Highway Patrol and said, I'm afraid to pe pull people over because they might not like me. So I don't pull anybody over. What, what are we paying you for? Go pull somebody over, except for me. Don't pull me over. So that, that's that idea, that fear of, of man, that fear of, of who men are. The priests and the leaders feared man and refused to act, even though they believed what they were doing is right. Do you think that they, they thought they were doing the right thing? They're trying to maintain the order of the temple. They're trying to maintain the tr religious traditions of their fa fathers. And they've got these upstarts coming in and talking about this Jesus. And by the way, we've had enough of these Jesus-type people. There was Judas of Galilee before Jesus was born who started this insurrection, got us in all kinds of trouble. So they're looking at this they're saying the right thing to do here is to not let them preach because they're causing trouble. They're going to bring up problems. They're going to get the Romans angry. It's going to... So they thought they were doing the right thing. But because of the fear of man, they were unable to act on the right, what they believed was the right thing. But the apostles look at this and they said, well, the only thing that's arrayed against us is the entire Roman Empire and all of the nation of Judea. But God's on our side, so we're going to go ahead and do this. So like I said, the fear of God enables, empowers, it leads us to act. The fear of man disables. It stops us. It holds us back. We can't do what we think is right. So I've brought up this, this missionary before, and what I'm going to do today is, is go into his story a little bit more, and I promise not to bring him up again. <laughs> I'll try to find another example. But uh, John G. Patton is just such a wonderful example of this gospel courage, this fear of the Lord enabling and empowering. And so um, this is taken from John Piper wrote a biography on him, and I just kind of tried to condense it down quite a bit. But let me tell you John G. Patton's story. And the reason I'm telling you that is because at the very end, um, it ties back in and it shows us how we can have that kind of gospel courage. Um, because John Patton had it, and so where do we get it? And how did the apostles get it? So let me tell you his story, and then we'll, we'll come back to that. Um, so the natives of the New Hebrides Islands uh, the New Hebrides are down by Australia. They're in the South Pacific. Uh, the New Hebrides Islands, in the 19th century, they were cannibals. They occasionally ate the flesh of their defeated enemies. They practiced infanticide. They would kill their babies. 
And when a man died, his widow would be executed with him so that she could attend him in the, in the life to come. These were barbaric people. They would kill people for whatever reason, and they were cannibals. So to the best of our knowledge, the island had no Christian influence before John Williams and James Harris from the London Missionary School landed in 1839. As far as we know, 1839 was the first Christian contact. There had been other Western contact because they had weapons. But the first gospel mission to these, these islands was um, these two men, John Williams and James Harris, in 1839. Uh, both of these missionaries, when they landed on the island, they were killed and eaten by cannibals on the island of Aramanga on November 20th of 1839, only minutes after they went ashore. So their boat that dropped him off is standing there watching as these men made it to the beach, were clubbed to death, boiled and eaten. That was, that was the, the first missionary journey to the New Hebrides. Three years later, another missionary team came to the island of Tana and was driven off within seven months. The people of the New Hebrides were hard. They were barbaric. They were difficult people to reach. Well, around the same time, a young man named John G. Patton decided to go to the New Hebrides in 1858. And so while he was traveling around and raising support, uh, he was at a church and a, a man named Mr. Dixon, uh, recalling the, the horror of Aramanga just 19 years earlier where the, the missionaries were killed, said to Patton, the cannibals, you'll be eaten by cannibals. Why would you go to this island? And Patton responded, Mr. Dixon, you're advanced in years now, and your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave, there to be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I'm eaten by cannibals or by worms. And in the great day, my resurrection body will rise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Savior. This is a man who didn't take no for an answer. So in 1858, at the age of 33, John G. Patton sailed to the New Hebrides with his wife, Mary. They reached the island of Tana in November, and in March of the next year, both his wife and his newborn son died of fever. They weren't even there a year, and his wife and his newborn died. So he buried them. He served them alone on the island for the next four years until, under incredible circumstances of constant danger, he was driven off the island in 1862 as well. So do you get the idea this is a difficult mission situation? So as he returns, he goes to Australia and Great Britain, and Patton worked hard for the mobilization of Presbyterian missions to the New Hebrides. Uh, he went around campaigning, we, folks, we need to raise money, we need to raise support, we need to raise missionaries and send them to the New Hebrides. There are natives on these islands who are dying without Christ, and we need to address that. So that was his mission. Um, he married in 1864, and two years later, his wife Margaret um, and he went back to the smaller island of Anuia. Uh, it was about seven miles by two miles, so it was a tiny little island. Uh, it was no less dangerous. This isn't Tana. This is another one of the islands, but it was no less dangerous. From Patton's own journal, he said, A wild chief followed me around for four hours with his loaded musket, and though often directed towards me, God restrained his hand. I spoke kindly to him and attended to my work as if he were not there, fully persuaded that my God had placed me there and would protect me till my allotted task was finished. Looking up in unceasing prayer to our Lord Jesus, I left all in his hands and felt immortal till my work was done. 
So he's out plowing his field or attending his crops, and there's a native standing there with a musket pointed at him. And he would just look around and go, good afternoon, and go back to work. That, that's, that's a brave man. These are cannibals, don't forget. These people club you to death. Uh, once a native named Ian, um, I'm sure that wasn't his real name. It's probably a given name. A native named Ian called Patton to his sickbed. And as Patton leaned over him, Ian pulled a dagger out and held it to Patton's heart. So Patton comes to help this man who's sick, and the man's response is to put a knife at his heart. And here's what Patton said in his journal. I durst neither move nor speak, except that my heart kept praying to the Lord to spare me, or if my time had come to take me home to glory with himself. There passed a few moments of awful suspense. My sight went and came. Not a word had been spoken except to Jesus. And then Ian wheeled the knife around and thrust it into the sugarcane leaf and cried out to me, go, go quickly. I ran for my, wife a weary, or my life a weary four miles till I reached the mission house, faint, yet praising God for such a deliverance. His biography is loaded with story after story after story like this. This is the threat that he faced. So eventually, George and Margaret uh, labored together until, uh, for 41 years on the island. Margaret died in 1905 when J, uh, uh, John Patton was 81. So John G, I guess G, is, his middle name was George. So they labored there for 41 years with this kind of opposition. What was the result? Uh, last time I looked, the New Hebrides Islands were 95% Presbyterian to this day. From the 19th century to the 21st century, and it's 95% Presbyterian. So John Piper, at the end of his, his summary of Patton's life, he asks, how did he have this uncommon courage? How could he look a loaded muzzle in the face and just keep working? How did he take a knife to the heart and just say, well, Lord, if you're done with me, I'm looking forward to meeting you. If not, how did he do that? And Piper listed seven things, but I'm going to pick out just three of them because they tie in to our, our message this morning. Um, so first of all, he had confidence in the sovereignty of God controlling all adversities. So this is from Patton's um, journal. He said, Whatever trials have befallen me in my earthly pilgrimage, I have never had the trial of doubting that perhaps, after all, Jesus had made some mistake. No! My blessed Savior Jesus makes no mistakes. When we see all his meaning, we shall then understand what now we can only trustfully believe that is all is well. Best for us, best for the cause most dear to us, best for the good of others and the glory of God. Patton had a high view of God's sovereignty. He trusted no matter what that God would do those things. What about the apostles? Did the apostles have a high view of God's sovereignty? Do you remember chapter 4 when they gathered to pray? They prayed like this, Sovereign Lord. Sovereign Lord. Lord over all things. Sovereign Lord who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. This was their view of who God was. They prayed, Truly in this city were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pilate, uh, Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So to have gospel courage, like we see our apostles doing, the first thing you need to believe is God is in control. And, and what Patton referred to regularly was he was immortal. He was 
in, unbeatable. He, was, he could not be killed until the very moment God said, I'm done with you, my servant, come home. That is a high view of God's sovereignty. So he could take a musket to the side of the face and look at it and smile because he knew if the ball goes through my head, that's when Jesus called me home. If it doesn't, I must have some more work to do. That is a high view of sovereignty. That's what our apostles had. They looked and they didn't say, Jesus, oh, poor Jesus, he got, he, he got killed. What happened? They looked and they said, Sovereign Lord, all of these happened, all of these things happened according to your plan as your hand had predestined. And that empowered them for mission. That gave them the confidence to go walk, march right back into the temple and get arrested again. So that was the first thing that Patton shared with these guys. The second thing was, his courage came through praying that submitted to God's sovereign will. So he saw God as sovereign, and he prayed that way. Here's again from his journal. He said, to know what was best to be done in such trying circumstances was an abiding perplexity. To have left altogether when so surrounded with perils and enemies at first seemed the wisest course. And when the repeated advice of my friends, oh, and was the repeated advice of my friends. So he's there, he's having no fruit. There was one man who converted named Abraham, and that was it. And so he's like, what do I do? I'm getting all this opposition. My friends back home are writing saying, coming home. What do I do? That was perplexing. But again, I had acquired the language of the people, and he gained a considerable influence among the natives. And there were a number, of warm, a number warmly attached both to myself and to the worship. To have left would have been to lose all, which to me was heartrending. Therefore, risking all with Jesus, I held on with the hope of being spared longer. Uh, I held on with the hope of being spared longer had not absolutely and entirely vanished. He had been praying. And remember how he described it when the, when the musket's at his head? He, all, the only words that, that were uttered were his prayer to God. He believed in God's sovereignty, and he prayed in God's sovereignty. And did our apostles do that? Well, listen to how their prayer ends in chapter 4. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your words with boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal. And signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. They believed God was sovereign, and they prayed like he was sovereign. Pay attention, Lord, sovereign Lord, pay attention to their threats and continue to extend your hand. Continue to work that way. Can you pray like that? Can you pray to a sovereign God? Can you call out to a sovereign God and say, you've already decided what was going to happen. Would you make that happen? And can I be part of it? That's how you have gospel courage to face the fear of man and walk right through it. And then finally, his courage came from a personal fellowship with Jesus through faith in his promise. It wasn't just, I have some nebulous idea of what, who Jesus is, who God is, and, and I'm praying to them. Listen to how, um, how Patton thought about his mission. My faith enabled me to grasp and to realize the promise, lo, I am with you always. In Jesus, I felt invulnerable and immortal so long as I was doing his work. And I can truly say, that there are the moments when I felt my Savior to be most truly and sensibly present, inspiring and empowering me. Do you hear what he hung on to? He didn't hung, hang on to some vague experience. He looked in the scriptures and he read, Lo, I am with you always. And he said, Lord, if you're with me always, I can do anything. He clung to God's promise. 
God had made him a promise, and he hung to it. Did our apostles do that? Part of their prayer, uh, or Jesus had promised them, right? At the beginning in, in Acts chapter 1, Jesus had promised them, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. As they're standing in the temple preaching, they're remembering the promise, I will be a witness to Samaria. I haven't been to Samaria yet. I will be a witness to Judea. I haven't gone to Judea yet. I'll be a witness to the ends of the earth. I haven't even left Jerusalem. But they could look at that and say, God promised me he'd do that. That was what he said would happen. He promised me that he would fit me with power. And now the Holy Spirit has come upon me. And I'm saying things. I can't even believe I'm saying these things. They're exactly what I wanted to say, exactly what was in my heart. And it's bigger than I'd have ever thought of anything. So let's go into the temple. That's where we're called to right now. So they, they had those three things going for them. And we've seen that through Acts as they trusted in a sovereign God. They prayed to a sovereign God, and they clung to the promises of a sovereign God. And that's how you get gospel courage, not by not being afraid. You get gospel courage by saying, my Lord's bigger than that. So will people look at me? Will they say something about me? Will they think I'm kind of funny? They might. But in 10,000 years, they're dust. My God reigns. You couldn't kill my God. Jesus died and rose again. He's not dust now. He never will be. So that's where gospel courage comes from. And it starts with that fear of the Lord, recognizing who God is, recognizing he is sovereign. He is able to do what he will do. And he has determined a purpose and a plan and trusting in him and then walking in it and saying, Lord, I, I can't be killed until you're done with me because I, I, you have given me a promise. You've told me to do these things and now I'm going to go out and do them. So what is that? What, what is God calling you to do specifically? What mission has he given you to do? Does he expect you to go marching into uh, 10th Street West and, and preach to every car that drives by? I don't know. That's between you and him. He'll tell you if that's what he wants you to do. Has he called you to be a faithful prayer for the church? Has he called you to be somebody who just shares with your neighbor or, or, or shouts a blessing over the gate? Whatever it is, what I want you to see this morning is you have all of the resources, every single resource that the apostles had has been given to you. The promise of the Holy Spirit was not restricted to the apostles. The promise of the Holy Spirit was given to all of us. The promise of being a witness to the ends of the earth was not given strictly to the, the apostles. It was given to all of us. His church would continue to carry that message to the ends of the earth. So what I want you to do this morning is to think about, is your God sovereign? Do you believe God is sovereign? That's an easy yes. Confessionally, yes, I can raise my hand. Hail and amen. Yes, brother. Where it gets hard is on Tuesday morning when things aren't going quite well. When, when Friday rolls around and you're going, gee, I've forgotten everything throughout the week. I didn't have a good week. Ask yourself then, do I believe in a sovereign God? Do I believe in a God who trusts, who, who has called me and who has promised me these things? The second thing you can do is pray. Do you pray? You know how you learn to pray? You pray. You just start doing it. There's no right formula. There's no right words. You don't have to use the word thee if you don't want to. It's okay. But if you don't start praying, you won't start praying. 
And if your God is sovereign, if you believe your God is sovereign, if you've read the scriptures and you've seen over and over again how he's fulfilled every promise, he's done everything he said he would, then you know you can pray to him. And you can say, Lord, what's my role? You've given us the command to go and make disciples of all the nations. Lord, you've told us that we will be your witnesses to to the ends of the earth. Lord, what's my role in that? I believe that you have a place for me. Ask him and then listen. And then finally... Trust his promises. He's told you that he has equipped you for whatever role he's called you to. Whatever thing it is that he's given you to do, he has uniquely fitted you for that role. Because he's sovereign. Because you pray to him. Because you ask him to show you. And so he can lead you to whatever it is you you are called to do. The problem I think sometimes in in churches is, is it turns into, if you're not evangelizing the way I am, you're probably not doing it right. And, and the truth is, if you're not evangelizing the way I am, you're probably doing it right. Because it's uniquely fitted to you. It's, it's who you are. You are a city on a hill. You are a light set, not under a bushel basket or hidden under a table. You're a light set so you can shine to the world. You are the salt of the earth. The preservative factor, the seasoning factor throughout of the, all the earth, that's you. So what I want you to see is our apostles had this great gospel confidence, and I want us to embrace that as well. That's why Luke shows us first the death of Ananias and Sapphira to stir in us that fear of the Lord. He's serious. God is really honestly serious about this stuff. He's not playing around. And he's not going to conform to what I think is right. I think they should have got their hands spanked. Not killed. Lord, what are you doing? And then he brings us to this, and he shows us this magnificent fear of the Lord manifesting itself in mission. That's what Luke is doing for us. This is what it means for disciples to make disciples. So let's engage in that. Pray for that this week. I'll pray for you guys. I promise in the mornings I'll pray for our church that the Lord would remind us of his promises, convince us of his sovereignty, and lead us to where he's calling us. Would you pray for me that way too? Would you pray for each other that way? If I can ask you just one last thing, when you have your prayer time um, and you stop and think, picture a face from the congregation, not just nebulous the people. Picture a face, some person that you know in the congregation, whether you like them or not, it's okay. Just picture a face and then pray specifically for that person. Can you imagine what's going to happen if we pray for each other that way? What is God going to do? It might be scary. I don't think he's going to send us to the New Hebrides, although with 95% Presbyterian, I wouldn't mind going. He might send us someplace even scarier, Lancaster, Palmdale, Leona Valley, Little Rock. Who knows? But pray for each other. Pray for me. I'll be praying for you. And let's watch our sovereign God work. Let's pray. Lord, we confess that you are sovereign. You are the creator of the heavens and the earth. There's not one thing in this entire universe that you didn't touch, that you didn't speak into existence, that you aren't currently ruling and and reigning over. Lord, there's not an atom that is out of place according to your perfect plan. And Lord, what's really amazing is in this vastness of this universe, in this uncountable molecules and atoms and and quarks and subparticles, Lord, you care about us. You pay attention to man. What is man that you would care for him? And yet you do. Lord, thank you for your sovereignty. And Lord, would you enable and equip us, all of us, 
through the work and the power of your Holy Spirit abiding in our hearts and our minds to remember promises that you've made. To remember, Lord, that you don't need to make a promise and then seal it with an oath because your word is reality. What you say happens. Lord, give us confidence in that. And then, Lord, would you remind us and show us what it is our role in your mission is? How can we serve? How can we follow? Where is it that we're led to go? And then, Father, Lord, would you please give us that gospel confidence, that gospel courage that your apostles had, that the fear of man would not stymie us, it wouldn't hold us back, but, Lord, the fear of the Lord would motivate us. Lord, lead us in mission, we pray. In Christ's name I ask. Amen.